welcome back to Food Toxicology. My name is Greg Muller and I'm the instructor for this course. Well, if we go back in history, we find that it was Paracelsus, the father of modern toxicology, that uh, gave us uh, the initial dose-response relationship, the title for today's lecture, in his uh, much-quoted saying, uh, it is the dose that makes the poison. And in fact, even in, in uh, ancient times, people recognized that there were certain toxins and toxic properties of things, the poisons, if you will. What we're going to do today is actually look at the uh, quantitative relationship between dose response and how we in toxicology use that response to classify toxicants, to do some risk assessment, and to model the relationship between chemistry and biology, between chemicals and biological systems. Our learning objectives here today, we're going to try to <clears throat> understand this quantitative relationship between toxicant exposure and the induced effects, these responses, uh, if you will. We're going to try to describe some frequently encountered toxic effects. What is the range of biological impacts that toxicants can have on the human body? We're going to try to interpret some of these mathematical relationships, these distributions, these frequency relationships in terms of uh, dose-response curves. How can we use this to model the dose and the toxicity relationship? We're going to try to use these as well to understand some of these threshold effects. At what point in the dose-response relationship do we transition from no effect to perhaps a toxic effect of concern? We're going to try as well to understand some of the terminology associated with a quantization of dose response. These are things like effective dose, margin of safety, and the relationship of effective versus toxic dose. And you would have that effective versus toxic dose in something like a pharmaceutical drug. What is an antibiotic other than something that is anti-life? It's trying to kill a toxic effect, in this case on microbes, but you want to kill the microbe, uh, kill the pathogen, but not the host. And so the idea is balancing these toxic dose against the host versus the effective dose against the pathogen. We're going to try as well to have some things where we use actual data for no observed uh, effects and lowest observed effects. What happens when we cross those critical thresholds and how do we use that information in risk assessment? We're going to try to summarize the effective lethal and toxic doses of uh, and how uh, dose response curves help us realize these numeric uh, indicators of relative toxicity. We're also going to delve into carcinogenesis for the first time. Cancer is a non-threshold effect, and so we're going to try to understand how we have modeled the relationship between carcinogenesis as a toxic end effect and dose. Well, to start off, it's best to identify what in fact is a dose. And it is defined as the amount of a substance administered at one time. And that's in contrast to something called a dosage, which is the amount per unit weight of the exposed individual. Okay, And sometimes we like, especially with uh, subchronic or chronic exposures, where there are multiple doses, we like to have those dosages not only in terms of the amount per unit weight, but the amount per unit weight over time. We can ex characterize uh, exposure by the number of doses, the frequency of dosing, and the total period of time for the exposure. Okay, 
you've probably heard that there are certain poisons, uh, arsenic being one of them, uh, where low-dose exposure can actually enhance the biological response such that you are more resistant to toxicosis than perhaps somebody who hasn't been previously dosed. The biochemical machinery for biotransformation has been upgraded, so to speak, version 2.0 in your body because of this pre-exposure at very, very low doses. And this is a part of the relationship between an exposed individual and a toxic exposure. Sometimes those who have very good nutritional and health status uh, have the biotransformation capability uh, to respond to toxicant exposure better than some others. Well, we'd like to be able to quantify the dose universally, and we use the gram uh, and the milligram, the basic SI units, to actually uh, quantify exposures in toxicology. Uh, the dosage we use is typically, when we do it on a, a, a body weight basis, is going to be a milligram per kilogram, and sometimes milligram per kilogram per day if we have uh, a duration of an effect. These exposures, in terms of the toxicant and the media that we're exposed to, we typically will see milligrams per liter in water or parts per million, uh, milligrams per kilogram in food materials, or milligrams per cubic meter in air. You will often hear the units, uh, the common units, part per million or PPM or PPB, and you should know the relationships. A milligram per kilogram is equal to a part per million. One of the other things while we're talking about units, and uh, I would make sure that you recognize even though we are doing mass-based units, there are some times in terms of looking at relationships, especially relationships between chemicals and biochemicals and toxicants, where we want to not fall into the trap of trying to compare mass units. For instance, the mass unit of a particular receptor with a particular toxin. In these cases, we go back to freshman chemistry when, in fact, molar relationships, the amounts of moles of toxicant and the moles of that receptor, perhaps a protein, is what is the relationship on a chemical basis. So make sure when you are quantifying the dose and doing some analysis, you're very aware of the units that you're using and the appropriateness of those units in that application. Well, some of the key concepts in dose response is that there is a mathematical relationship and that mathematical relationship has a positive slope. What does that mean? That means that as we increase dose, we have an increase in response. This is critical in toxicology. Without that response, we don't have one of those things in toxicology that is explainable or modelable. This is a cause and effect relationship. These responses that we have have to be observable. Now, if you look back in the past 25 years or so, with the rapid development of biotechnology and understanding of molecular biology, the subject matter of observable responses has changed significantly. What used to be perhaps a clinical manifestation of disease, a fever, a rash, uh, some sort of macro analysis, uh, modified perhaps until clinical diagnosis, blood analysis, enzyme analyses, perhaps tissue damage. Now we have the ability through, micro, uh, through uh, uh, molecular biology to actually look at molecular responses to exposure to toxicants. The question I will hand to you is, 
is a change in a molecular relationship, on a molecular basis, is that sufficient to regard it as an observable response for toxicosis? This is actually a question that's being asked because we do see the impacts, the modification of molecular biology in a response to intoxicant exposure. We see that, for instance, in low-dose dioxin exposure. The question is, is that observable response a toxicosis? And that is a question that is actually being debated. It's being debated currently, especially in the arena of safe levels of very toxic substances such as dioxin. In terms of uh, the dose-response relationship, we also would like to be able to statistically manage all of the variability of individual responses. So sometimes we'd like to be able to look at gender effects, species effects, genetics, uh, perhaps age, whether this is in animal models or in human models. And so the idea there is that populations have variability. Can we wean out that variability, for example, to see if, in fact, what we are observing is, in fact, a strict dose-response relationship or it has some strong influence by one of these factors. Well, it is good for us to take a look and uh, understand perhaps the range of responses, these toxic end effects that we might have in terms of the dose-response relationship. And we'll go through this listing on, on the next few slides just to give you a sense of familiarity. We actually will cover several of these in detail, for instance, in target organ toxicology uh, and some others where we actually will see in development on a molecular or tissue organismal, organ or organismal basis uh, what these end effects uh, are like. One of the toxic effects we might see in toxicosis is an inflammation that may be a local or systemic response. We'll see necrosis or cell death. Uh, necrotic tissue, gangrenous tissue, tissues that actually uh, die off. Uh, they can die off because of the chemical relationship. For instance, uh, if you look at uh, the relationship of strong acids or strong bases, they actually will dissolve uh, cell membranes and kill off cells. Uh, so we can develop necrotic tissue with the development of those toxicants, uh, either primary or secondary. Enzyme inhibition, and that will yield some biochemical pathway interruption uh, or, for instance, non-competitive or competitive uh, inhibition. Uh, sometimes uh, we've, uh, we'll see uh, in the area of neurotoxicity cholinesterase inhibition, a key enzyme in neurotransmission that is interfered with by these chemicals and their relationship to receptors on the enzyme. We'll see instances of biochemical uncoupling where we have an interference in some sort of biochemical uh, pathway like uh, ATP biosynthesis. Uh, for example, uh, pentachlorophenol, uh, compound, a chlorinated hydrocarbon used actively uh, as an insecticide and, and a treatment of uh, wood products like poles uh, is actually a biochemical uncoupling agent. We'll see as an end effect things like lethal synthesis where in fact the uh, toxicant is incorporated into a biochemical pathway. Uh, one of the toxicants we'll review here is uh, fluoroacetate. Fluoroacetate is a, is a, uh, a compound that uh, comes to us from nature, uh, and this particular uh, chemical compound uh, in the gastrolobium species of plants in South America and Australia actually uh, can interrupt the Krebs cycle, 
and uh, uh, essentially shut down molecular energy mechanisms. Uh, lipid peroxidation is another we talk about uh, quite often, the importance of antioxidants in our diet. Uh, we'll do a whole segment in our target organ toxicology lecture about uh, uh, lipid peroxidation and oxidative stress. But the idea there is that there are many chemical reactions in terms of our normal respiratory functions that produce uh, free radicals. And these free radicals have the ability to attack the lipid bilayer in cells and release all of those materials within cells, things like lysozymes, uh, digestive enzymes, if you will, uh, that can have a, a very damaging impact on the surrounding tissues. We can have, uh, in terms of responses, things like covalent bonding, the uh, uh, alkylated uh, mustard gases that actually will alkylate DNA. Uh, these are uh, electrophilic uh, reactive attacks on the DNA molecule. And so uh, things like uh, aflatoxins, mustard gas, will actually bind to DNA and perhaps cause uh, mutagenesis. Receptor interaction, and uh, we'll introduce uh, in many uh, segments of uh, the lectures in food toxicology the potential for receptor interaction. And one of the major ones we'll deal with is endocrine disruption, where we have estrogens or uh, false estrogens actually uh, coming in and playing a role in terms of hormone uh, receptor interactions. We'll also see immune-mediated hypersensitivity reactions where we actually have specific antigenic chemicals that actually result in an allergic reaction, uh, the basis for a lot of food allergies and food sensitivities. We'll deal with a whole lecture on this particular subject area here in this course. Um, as well, we'll have, uh, in terms of a toxic response, things like immunosuppression. Dioxin is uh, uh, well known for its immune suppression, uh, many chlorinated hydrocarbons uh, as well. And this will give us uh, not necessarily a direct toxicosis, but the indirect toxicosis where the immune suppression itself may not be lethal, but the byproducts of immune suppression, infection by pathogenic agents, will actually be the cause of morbidity and mortality in the subject. In terms of toxic responses, we also have cancer, the development of neoplasia. Uh, these are aberrant cell uh, division and tissue growth. Uh, as you probably know, these come in two major varieties, those that are malignant or metastasizing uh, carcinogenesis, and we also have neoplasms or tumors that develop uh, that are not uh, 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 malignant tumors, uh, oncogenesis. Uh, we will deal with uh, carcinogenesis uh, and the molecular basis for carcinogenesis uh, in one of our lectures as well this semester. In terms of some other responses, we have things like genotoxic interactions where we have an interaction of the chemical with DNA and that can possibly lead to an inheritable change. Now think about this, that the parents are exposed to a toxicant, but it is the, in fact uh, the, uh, the uh, offspring uh, that suffer because of DNA damage. Uh, there is some potential for classogenic or chromosomal effects as well as mutagenic effects which have to do with base pairs. Uh, if we get false substitutions in terms of base pairs, we get uh, uh, inefficient, poor, or wrong coding for proteins, and uh, those can have dramatic effects on the survivability of the organism. 
We also have as an end effect uh, developmental and reproductive uh, toxicity. This can happen once there is conception uh, exposure of the conceptus uh, to uh, developmental toxins. Uh, these will uh, not only have adverse effects on consumption, but we perhaps have teratogenesis development problems with the structure and function of the conceptus. Now, some of the toxic responses that we deal with in toxicology are referred to as idiosyncratic. Okay? Idiosyncratic means it's somewhat specific to the individual. It's not a broad population necessarily based. It's perhaps segments of that population. Sometimes these are genetically determined sensitivities or resistances to toxicity. Okay? And typically you'll see these highly resistant or highly susceptible people show up on uh, the normal distribution in terms of a, a large-scale population and their response to exposure to a particular toxin. Sometimes these individuals lack enzymes or some factors involved in the metabolism. And so there is a genetic defect or a genetic difference in this subpopulation or this small group of people. Sometimes these groups of people are not particularly small. About 10% of black males, about 400 million people worldwide have a deficiency of glucose 6-phosphate dehydrogenase. This particular deficiency makes them susceptible to oxidative uh, damage from oxidative, oxidative compounds. Uh, for example, uh, primaquin is an oxidative anti-malarial drug. Um, individuals uh, that have this genetic uh, deficiency will actually, uh, because they, they lack this enzyme in their erythrocytes, They'll start oxidizing uh, their red blood cells, uh, go into hemolytic anemia, perhaps hemolytic crisis. Uh, it can be a very toxic exposure for these individuals. This is where the doctor-patient relationship is good in terms of predisposition, genetic predisposition to these particular deficiencies. And people know which subpopulations, which groups, which cultural, uh, racial uh, groups are more inclined to have these sorts of deficiencies or defects. You may have also heard of uh, blue baby syndrome where uh, nitrates uh, in, in drinking water, uh, especially at high levels, uh, the, the maximum contaminant level in drinking water is 10 parts per million. Many agriculturally impacted areas have significantly higher levels of nitrates. Uh, the problem in infants with methemoglobinemia or blue baby syndrome is that they um, actually, their gut uh, converts that nitrate into nitrites and they just don't have uh, sufficient uh, ability to uh, oxidize that back. Uh, some groups of people actually lack the NADH methemoglobin reductase enzyme and they are highly susceptible to uh, methemoglobinemia. And this is a uh, oxidation of the ferrous iron on hemoglobin to ferric iron, uh, poor for transport. Uh, so in fact, there has to be a reducing agent. The typical therapy for this is uh, the uh, dye that's used uh, quite often in uh, uh, laboratories. Methylene blue is actually one of the therapies in veterinary animal toxicology uh, used for nitrate toxicosis. 
Now, there are other types of toxic responses, and one of the most important in food toxicology, or perhaps common, is uh, allergic reactions. And again, we'll deal with this uh, in, in, in uh, significant detail later in the 